and welcome to The Detail's Long Read. I'm Bonnie Harrison and this week, a story from February's North and South magazine by Ollie Knees. It's about the escalation of Chinese influence in the South Pacific. In Samoa, there are mixed feelings about both Sino-influence and the nation's growing indebtedness to the superpower. Additional reporting and translation is by Talaya Mika and this is an abridged version of Talofa and Nihau. In December 1894, mourners carried the body of Robert Louis Stevenson up the steep, jungled slopes of Mount Vaya to his final resting place, overlooking Apia. During his life, the Scottish novelist had become an international celebrity for his tales of romantic adventure, such as Treasure Island and Kidnapped. But after settling in Samoa in 1889, Stevenson experienced a political awakening. Samoa was entangled in colonial rivalry as the United Kingdom, United States and Germany wrestled to seize control of the strategically important archipelago in the South Pacific. Gunboats were a common sight off the coast of Apia, sometimes firing at villages on shore. Stevenson became an activist, an agitator, penning letters to European papers about Samoa's plight, but it was of little use. Five years after Stevenson's death, at a meeting half a world away in Washington, the imperial powers agreed to divide Samoa between them. The US took Tutuila and other islands in the east, while Germany took the larger islands of Upolu and Savai'i in the west. In exchange, Germany recognised Britain's interests in Tonga and parts of Africa. The Samoan people were not consulted. More than 120 years on, The grave of Robert Louis Stevenson offers a glimpse of a new great power contest gripping the Pacific. From the top of Mount Vaya, the US diplomatic compound can be seen through the trees below, surrounded by a security fence. Directly across the road, with a view over the fence, is a large construction site for a new embassy complex for Samoa's largest creditor, the People's Republic of China. On the other side of the construction site sits the Australian Defence Compound, which, until recently, looked out over the ocean. Now, a multi-storey complex, adorned with a banner in Chinese characters declaring, Always stay with the party, blocks the view. Since World War II, the US and its allies have enjoyed a strong influence in the Pacific, But that order is under threat as China's power and influence in the region grows, provoking anxiety in the halls of power in Washington, Canberra and in Wellington. Chinese-built infrastructure, from roads to bridges, parliament buildings to stadiums, is now ubiquitous across the Pacific, the product of investment that has seen China become the second-largest aid donor to the region, behind Australia, winning favour from Honiara to Nuku'alofa, Since 2000, the value of Chinese exports to the region has increased 12-fold. Three Pacific countries, Tonga, Samoa and Vanuatu, are among the most heavily indebted to China of countries anywhere in the world. Diplomatic engagement is intensifying. Since 2014, there has been an unprecedented 32 face-to-face meetings between Pacific leaders and Chinese President Xi Jinping, 
all but four Pacific states have severed relations with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. China is also pitching itself as a security provider to Pacific states as Chinese naval vessels become an increasingly common sight in Pacific waters. As China's presence has grown, so too has concern in Western capitals, where China's rise is often described in sinister terms, threatening peace and stability, entrenching corruption, entrapping small island nations in debt. That concern reached fever pitch last March, when news broke of a security agreement between the Solomon Islands and China, which appeared to allow for the deployment of Chinese security forces to the islands at the request of the Solomon's government. Although defended by Solomon's officials as a response to domestic social unrest, Western observers were quick to see the agreement as opening the door to a broader Chinese military presence in the South Pacific, and potentially to a Chinese naval base near Australia's border. What has followed has been a year of diplomatic jousting unprecedented in the region in recent times. But in Apia, as in other Pacific capitals, the response to these developments has not been so simple. Over 120 years after that meeting in Washington, Samoa remains a divided country. While what was Western Samoa won its independence 60 years ago, the islands to the east remain a territory of the US, a nation whose military bases still dot the Pacific. In these waters, history remains close to the surface. At party headquarters, the ousted Prime Minister holds court in his office, a minute's drive from a parliament that he is barred from entering. For 22 years, Tsuila Epa Sailele Maliele Ngaoi served as Samoa's Prime Minister, the longest tenure in Samoa's history. But after a nail-biting election, an ensuing constitutional crisis, and a series of contested court rulings, Tsuila Epa now finds himself out of power and suspended from Parliament for contempt of court. Over a year on from the election, he remains defiant. Oh, we are fighting, he says. This government has proceeded from one unconstitutional illegal decision to another and another and another. While Tuilaepa remains an influential figure, there is little denying the wave of discontent that brought about the end of his government and the most dramatic shift in Samoan politics in 40 years. That discontent was, of course, multifaceted, but one factor was controversy over a proposed port development at Vayusu Bay near Apia, to be paid for with a $139 million loan from China. To Tsuila Epa, the proposal was a prudent step to boost port capacity, but to the then opposition, it was a step too far, raising questions about Samoa's deepening ties to China under a prime minister who had come to be regarded by some as a close China ally. The fruits of those ties are everywhere in Samoa. The International Airport Terminal, a multi-facility sports complex, government buildings, the hospital, schools, a cultural centre, all built by China. The price? A steady rise in debt, which has seen China become Samoa's single largest creditor, accounting for around 40% of its external debt. 
as at 2019, Samoa ranked sixth globally among countries most indebted to China. The proposed port development at Vayusu Bay would have increased debt exposure to China by 70% on one estimate. Samoa's experience in this regard reflects a broader pattern across the Pacific, with Chinese aid to the region, much in the form of high-profile infrastructure projects, doubling between 2008 and 2016, according to Australian think tank the Lowy Institute. Although often paid for through concessional low-interest loans, the sheer scale of this assistance has raised concerns about the risks posed to small economies such as Samoa's, which the International Monetary Fund considers at high risk of debt stress. US officials allege China's lending practices amount to predatory economics, or payday loan diplomacy, using foreign aid to secure leverage over indebted Pacific governments. We still owe China $400 million in debts from the past. We do not have enough coconuts to repay the Chinese back for all these loans, said local MP Fao Muina Wayne Fong in relation to the proposed port development. Why would a small country like Samoa, with exports of about 30% of its economic output and imports about 40% of its economy, need a wharf to cater to 12 vessels, he asked. Definitely not for exports and imports, hence why I say it must be a military wharf. But to Tuila Epa, these concerns fail to account for the fact that China's support usually comes at Samoa's request, often when other partners aren't willing to help. This was the case with both the upgrades to the international airport terminal and the proposed port development, Tuila Epa says, with the Asian Development Bank deeming the latter project unviable. Tuila Epa is frank that this support does come with expectations, but says this is not unique to China. China has done quite a lot, he says, but they also request us for help, and we can help. Usually, the most often requested help is the same as what New Zealand, Australia, Japan, America request. The vote. The vote is our extremely powerful tool to pay back the kindness of nations to Samoa. Despite the persistence of the debt trap narrative, the evidence to support it appears to be weakening. A 2019 report from the Lowy Institute found that China was not engaging in deliberate debt trap diplomacy in the Pacific, but noted that concerns remained about the sheer scale of borrowing. Chinese President Xi Jinping has himself emphasised the need to ensure debt sustainability for future aid projects. China's aid to the Pacific has in fact declined since 2016. Nonetheless, soon after taking office in July 2021, the newly elected Prime Minister Afionga Fiame Naomi Mata'afa, Tuila Epa's former deputy, confirmed that the Vayusu Bay development would not be proceeding, calling the plan excessive for the country's needs. International observers were quick to read into this decision a pivot away from Beijing under the new administration. But almost immediately, the new Prime Minister sought to dispel this suggestion. It could have been any other donor, Fiamir told RNZ, describing the decision as simply a matter of prioritisation. On the big island of Savai'i, another port development tied to China remains under consideration. The cancellation of the Vayusu Bay project still rankles with the former Prime Minister, especially the suggestion that there was ever a military aspect to it. 
It's ridiculous to expect a big country to come and have a base here in a small country, he says. But it is an argument, because there are anti-Chinese people, not only here, but in New Zealand. They just speak on anything that will influence the minds of the people to protest. In the village of Mangiangi, on the outskirts of the island of Upolu, Mia Luafau Leia Tuulima Aima Asu is grappling with a decision that could divide his community. Whether to follow a growing number of villages in banning Chinese businesses from operating on village land. The business owners or shop owners in the village are the most to disapprove of letting Chinese businesses into the village because they say it'll steal their customers and so forth. Because, as we all know, the Chinese shops have cheap products, Lua Fao explains. But if we look at the beneficial side of things, considering what is good for every family in the village, if we let Chinese businesses in, the village will benefit from our lands, which we can lease to them for their businesses, as well as the price of Chinese products, much more cheaper for families, he says. Samoa's Chinese community dates back over 150 years, with migrants arriving first as free settlers, then as indentured labourers. The impact of this migration is everywhere, from local culinary staples such as kekepua'a, or pork buns, and sapasui, or chop suey, to names like Chan Mao and Aliki that adorn prominent businesses downtown. Around one in three Samoans, including 20% of MPs, are estimated to claim Chinese ancestry. But now a new wave of migration tied to China's rise is bringing new challenges, as the decision Lua Fao and his villager facing shows. Former Attorney General Tuatanga Loa Aumua Ming Leo Wai is one of those Samoans with Chinese ancestry. Now a barrister, Leong Wai has written about the history of Samoa's Chinese community and believes these deep ties play a role in the close relationship between the two countries. However, there are now mixed feelings about the more recent wave of migration, he says. The locals will be comparing the new wave of Chinese with the previous waves, he says. With the previous waves, they integrated into society, took up chiefly titles, basically assimilated into our Samoan society. With the new wave, particularly the Chinese without any blood connections to Samoa, they will usually marry Chinese and are not very involved with the community. They're more interested in just running the business. Leong Wai says the success of many of these businesses has brought benefits to consumers, but on the other side of the coin, he says, there's the locals who run their own shops. In small shops in the villages, I think they're facing a lot of competition. If they can't compete, they'll have to close shop, he says. These concerns are not just felt in the villages. One prominent local business person, who asked not to be named, expressed concern about Chinese businesses undercutting local competitors, possibly by not paying tax. One 2015 survey by then-University of Otago academic Dr Iyati Yati identified fear of Chinese domination of the business sector as a major theme among respondents. In recent years, there have been a number of attacks on the owners and employees of Chinese businesses in Samoa, one resulting in death. However, CEO of Samoan Chamber Commerce Le Maunga Hobart Va'ai says that away from the villages, Chinese investment is largely welcomed. 
and often preferred over that from New Zealand and Australian businesses. The Chinese, they're just more direct. Let's just get things moving, get it done straight away, Va Ai says. If you would ask me what was the number one issue now, it's basically our workers leaving for overseas, to New Zealand and Australia, Va Ai says. Indeed, that night, at a Chamber of Commerce meeting of local businesses, the main topic of contention is the loss of workers to New Zealand and Australia. In a farm on the outskirts of Apia, Dr Jim Liao, senior agronomist for China Aid, moves through the rows of crops, pointing out the quite literal fruits of over a decade's work on China's largest demonstration farm in the South Pacific. When I first find Dr Liao, he is preparing for a presentation to local officials on the Samoa China Agriculture Technical Assistance Project, a programme aimed at improving agriculture in Samoa through farming demonstrations, technology transfers and training. China thinks of itself as a developing country, he says. But we may be better developed than some in the field of agriculture. Therefore, we are willing to share this agricultural technology and experience with other developing countries. This benefits the people and the country of the recipients. But it's also good for China, because China is importing lots of agricultural products. We hope agriculture production could be improved all over the world, he says. There's no grounds for suspicion. Whether the project will continue or not completely depends on the request of the recipient government. If you do not need it, you can stop it. It's very simple. It's not because China wants to increase its influence, he says. Few but the most hawkish of China watchers would deny the benefits brought by Chinese aid to countries like Samoa. The controversy is over what Beijing wants in return. The contention from critics is that Chinese aid and diplomacy is part of a broader scheme by Beijing to shape the world in its image. Dr Jason Young, the director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre in Wellington, says China has used its growing influence to push back against criticism of its human rights record. In the case of Xinjiang, where there's credible reports of really concerning human rights issues in the region, There's been a campaign to counter that argument all over the world, including in New Zealand and the Pacific, through media, through official engagements, through events, to pressure governments not to stand up and criticise China's human rights record, he says. Just as New Zealand has its China experts, China has its New Zealand experts. Professor Chen Hong, director of the New Zealand and Australian Studies Centre at East China Normal University in Shanghai, is one of them. In Chen's view, much of the concern about China's influence abroad is based on a misunderstanding. China doesn't have this kind of grand strategy, he says. China's very much a self-contained economy and society. People don't really think about the world with this kind of expansionist idea. Chen says all donors expect to get something in return for their investment. If a country such as the United States, Australia or New Zealand is supporting one island country seemingly with no particular purpose in return, well then, that's very good. It's altruistic. It's something that is very grand, very good morally. But really, what we see in the United States, Australia or some other countries has been they expect something in return. They want to help with providing some aid, but with an expectation there will be influence. 
well, that is, political influence. To New Zealand Samoan academic Dr Iati Yati, much of the concern about China in the Pacific boils down to something more fundamental. There has been a lot of fear-mongering from the West, and that's because they are starting to lose their grip or their hold over the region, he says. These countries are becoming more independent, not so dependent on them, but having more options in terms of aid donors and who they can go to for assistance, without having to be subject to conditions like the ones that have been imposed by the West, he says. Pacific Island countries have a centuries-old history of their cultural traditions, which they hold on to very strongly, so to think that Pacific Island countries are suddenly going to roll over and let any country impose their values on them is just ridiculous, he says. Late last May, in the wake of the China Solomon security deal, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi embarked on a whirlwind tour of 10 Pacific Island states with the aim of securing agreement to a common development vision, an expansive multilateral plan covering trade, law enforcement, fisheries planning, disaster relief, COVID-19, among other things. By the end of the tour, China had inked 52 new bilateral agreements with Pacific leaders. But the regional pact remained unsigned. Pacific leaders were not ready to agree to it. This was not the rebuke of Beijing that Washington wanted it to be, but the comments of Pacific leaders in the weeks that followed made clear a desire for the Pacific to forge its own way, free from both Chinese and Western pressure. We have very small opportunities where we have the advantage, and our advantage is when our views are combined together to represent the Pacific, Samoan Prime Minister Fiame Naomi Mata'afa explained at a press conference for local media. She noted that New Zealand, Australia and the US had all insisted that Samoa speak to the Solomons about their concerns over the security deal with China, but she hadn't, because she saw this as a matter for regional discussion. She also noted the inconsistency in the lack of controversy over security pacts pushed by the West without Pacific input, such as AUKUS, which could see Australian nuclear-powered submarines prowling Pacific waters. There are times they choose to talk to us, and there are times they go on their own, Fiamir said. We have been in partnership with these major powers for a long time. What's new now that they seem to be seeking support in the Pacific? That was Talofa and Nihau, written by Ollie Nees and published in North and South's February issue. The Details Long Read is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. We'll be back next week with a new long read. Tofa soifua. Tofa soifua.